I don't know that we've got a big enough audience to start off with a good morning play ed podcast. Do we need to do this at another time? We are both like frighteningly low energy. It's okay. We've got our coffee. We'll be fine in five minutes. Welcome to the Play Ed Podcast, where we explore cultivating connections through play. Hello and welcome to the Play Ed Podcast. I'm your host, Chris. With me today is our co-host. Hi, I'm Laura. We are here to explore cultivating connections through play. So, we had been talking a couple weeks ago and we had sort of dropped in the middle of the whole thing how we had adapted some games for younger players, but I thought it would be a great idea to talk today about games that are meant for younger players. Games that don't require them to, for example, necessarily be literate to be able to play, even if you still need someone who can read to help explain the rules. Right. That's 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 really good. Um, we have a wide range of ages in our household, and obviously our children have friends who have a wide range of skill levels. We have... Um, some kids who are not yet literate. We have some who are learning to read. Um, we have some with learning difficulties. Um, and we have both in our own home and in our circle of friends, a lot of children who are not neurotypical. Uh, and so some aspects of game play and rules and social interaction need a little more um, wrapper to help them learn to understand and and understand and and engage effectively yeah so it's nice to have a game where there's a lot less adaptation that needs to be done yeah i mean yes i can take dungeons and dragons or um avalon hills advanced civ and and kind of scale it down and i think in a previous episode we talked about doing that a bit with um we alluded to doing that with gmt games dominant species um and we're we're I plan to do some further episodes on on those in detail uh, mm-hmm. coming up, but today we really wanted to focus on games that don't need to be adapted. They're designed for that pre-literate crowd. So, in a sense, you could consider this as uh, an episode devoted to what else is there besides Candyland. That's a great way to describe this. So, we had... When we had been just talking about doing this a couple of years ago, I've got a neighbor down the street who also loves playing board games, and they've got a daughter who's, I think, now about seven. Yes. And there's always that question when you're trying to get your children into playing board games, and you love playing some of the more complex ones, what's a good entry point? And to my mind, the best entry point is they don't have to have a whole lot of cards that they have to read with rules on them throughout the game that there's a fairly simple objective and so the game is focused on maybe one or two skills or strategies so that the beginning player isn't trying to juggle too many things at once. And so to elaborate on that, Candyland is, at least in my experience, the game everybody gloms on to as a simple game designed for a pre-literate audience And let's be honest, it's a boring game. It is pure luck of the draw that you get the right color squares that advance you through the board. 
Shoots and Ladders is even a little too complicated for some be- some really young kids um, because the back and forth can be very, very upsetting. Um, but that, that kind of level of complexity. And unfortunately for a lot of parents, the idea is that, well, aside from Candyland, everything is Monopoly or more complicated. It requires reading. It requires numeracy. It requires a, an ability to think abstractly in order to engage in the competitive aspect of Beggar Thy Neighbor that so many board games are rooted in. And that leaves the question, what is a parent to do? Well, good news, we've got some games we can talk about today. Laura, what's your favorite for uh, games that our kids love to play and can now play on their own, even though several of them can't read? All right. I think where I would start, and this was when we ended up getting at Christmas this year, it's a game called Labyrinth. I will make sure to have a link to it in the uh, show notes. This one, it's by Ravensburger, right? I believe so. Yes. Yes, it is. Big fans of Ravensburger games. So if you're looking for a game publisher, um, Ravensburger's got a couple that we're going to talk about today. In fact, I've got a second one that I just remembered as we were speaking. But Labyrinth, we ended up getting at Christmas this year. And Labyrinth, as the game implies, involves a maze. But there's an interesting trick to it. The board is two pieces. One has permanent squares that stay in place. And then you have... They're, they're glued to the game board. Glued to the game board. And then you have other squares of the same size in a nice heavyweight chit that you put on the board that move. And part of the rules of the game is that you are handed cards with a treasure that you're supposed to be seeking on the game board. So it's visual. Mm-hmm. You have on the game board pictures of that same treasure... And, and there are they piece separate pieces or are they printed on the game card? Printed on the game card. Okay. And you have your pawns that you move around the game board. But the thing is that not just you move, the game board moves. On each turn before you're allowed to move your pawn, you have to move one piece in the game board so that the maze shifts at a path that once existed may not exist now for you to get to your next objective. And I had pulled this out a couple months back. It was one of those days where it was rainy, our backyard was flooded again. Well, and it was probably January because we had gotten it for Christmas and it was cold and miserable. Yes. Who wants to go outside when it's cold, wet, and miserable, even in Texas? Yes, and besides that, I didn't feel like cleaning up mud. (laughs) (laughs) but I wanted to pull out a board game and I did not have the energy to think through anything more complicated than Candyland, but I don't think we have a working copy of Candyland. We do not have a copy of Candyland. We had one many years ago. Um, The kids played it to death. Um, We replaced it. The second copy didn't really get played to death so much as the cards got scattered to the four winds. Yes, not an easy game to play when the cards disappear. Um, so we had... You, but you pulled out Labyrinth. I pulled out, I pulled out Labyrinth because I was looking for something that was low-energy investment on my side and was going to be easy to play for even the youngest. And our kids fell in love with that game. Yeah. My seven-year-old, in particular, discovered he was very good at figuring out how to figure out paths. He has... 
his mind just sees... His pathing is better than a lot of late 90s computer game AI. Let's just put it that way. Yes. So he, he loves the game because it is accessible to the five-year-old, to the seven-year-old. They don't need to have to have us reading. We can be there to make sure that they remember the rules. But the rules are something that even the five-year-old understands implicitly. It makes perfect sense. And they can all do the gameplay. And it's fun to try to get there and to realize that I don't have to throw the game. I don't have to worry that I'm somehow, you know, working at a level far above my kid and that it's not fair competition. My seven-year-old is actually genuinely good competition in this game. Um, And he was, they were all having the most fun. And now they'll pull out the game and play it on their own. And it becomes a good game that I can say, they know the rules. They can play it easily on their own. And I just have to be there to make sure that no one's getting so upset that a game board gets thrown. Yeah. Um, something else that we've found uh, works really well. The kids all glommed on to Castle Panic, which is produced by Fireside Games. It's won some awards. It's definitely um, uh, a very popular game. I know it sells well on Amazon. Um, it's a tower defense game. Um, and there are a couple of other versions of the game with different skins. This one has a kind of fantasy theme where the monsters are orcs and trolls and ogres and goblins. Um, But the players are all defending a little cardboard castle that has different parts in the center of the board. And the, uh, as the turns progress, the monsters advance again, very card driven. There's some writing, but you can tell from the illustrations what a card is supposed to do. Um, And so our kids will pull Castle Panic out and play that. Um, And really that's that's two games of at least a slightly higher complexity than you find with um, Candyland that we can play and enjoy as adults with them. But if we're just too busy or too exhausted to play a more complicated game and scale it down, these are games designed for that age cohort. And I think what I think what's important about both of them is that they're games that encourage strategic thinking. And what I like about a, a good game for children is that it it's not pure luck. A game should not be like roulette, something where you just spin something and see where it lands. Because... Yeah. While you could say with Candyland, say you're learning to recognize and match colors, and maybe there is some value in that. Um, or with Shoots and Ladders, you know, being able to count to 100 really is an important developmental mild, step. Developmental step. Um, I like having a little less luck and a little more strategy involved in the actual winning of the game and encouraging them to look and say, how do I do this? Not just, will this thing happen? I know when I was a kid, and it was probably around seven or eight when I realized that Candyland really was a game of pure luck, that was when I quit playing. Um, And I started looking for other games, and there weren't really a whole lot of games. I mean, we've talked about some of the games in my childhood, but it was like, your options were chess, which most of my family didn't want to play, Monopoly, which had its own problems in terms of complexity and finding other players. Um, Don't forget Battleship and Hungry Hungry Hippos, the games your parents didn't want because there were lots of pieces to lose. That's true. That's true. And choking hazards if you had younger siblings. Well, yeah. Yeah. 
And, and so that kind of brings up a more general question of, so we could sit here and list probably another half dozen or so games that are ideally designed for that, call it four to eight, um, on the cusp of being literate to literate, um, that age range, and and that, that older siblings can get in on the game, adults can get in on the game and not be bored out of their minds. But it may be more helpful if we try and pull out some more general characteristics that other parents could look for. Because I can think of Enchanted Forest and um, we've mentioned Labyrinth. Yeah, you should tell them about what Enchanted Forest is because that's, I, I think there's a good story there. Okay. All right. So Enchanted Forest was a Ravensburger game. I don't know how we ended up with a copy of it in my childhood. I was a teenager and my parents got a copy of it for my younger siblings. The whole game has a um, has a fairy tale theme. So you have these cute little wooden pawns, um, and they move about a very colorful board that has a, a town at one end, a castle at the other, and an enchanted forest in between. And there are different paths that run through the forest, and the forest is stocked with these little plastic trees that have a cardboard icon stuck on the underside of the tree so that it's hidden in normal play. And as you move through the forest, when you stop by a particular tree, you, the player, are allowed to pick up the tree and look at the icon on the underside. That icon is of a particular fairy tale object, so Cinderella's glass slipper. Mm -hmm. Or, um, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember some of the others. Uh, there's something that has to do with Rumpelstiltskin. There's a spinning wheel for Rumpelstiltskin. Um, there's a, there's a ring for one of the fairy tales, but all of these objects or icons that suggest fairy tales. So while hopefully you're reading fairy stories to your children to get, to help cultivate that imagination, here's a board game that's built around those classic fairy tales. Okay. So... But it's a memory game. Mm -hmm. In the castle is a stack of, um, I say cards, but they're really more, they're, they're much heavier weight than, than a standard playing card. They're almost like tiles. Yeah. Um, made out of a really, really high quality cardboard. Um, it will resist, uh, at least in my experience, small toddlers gnawing on it, although you don't want them to get too chewy. Um... And each of those plaques has an illustration representing one of the stories and the object on it. And so you can turn the plaque, the, the tile, up, and that's the object everybody's trying to find. And so you roll a die and you wander your pieces through the forest, inspecting the roots of trees, and then trying to remember the location so that you can make a beeline for the castle and claim the tile. It can be very fast playing if you have a number of children engaged. It can be painfully slow if you have a very young child who has not really developed the memory skills necessary. Um, so that's something to keep in mind is being aware of roughly where your child is developmentally and understanding as you look at a game, what's the key elements that are the part of the game? With a memory game... If your child's memory is weak, this might help build it, or it might be an exercise in frustration. 
but if you've got a strong memory, this provides that incentive to increase that ability to remember things like, where did I see that last? And the same goes for any matching card game. We ended up uh, at Easter this year, our kids got handed in 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 their in one of their Easter baskets a, a, a matching game, uh, a card deck. And I, I think it was like saints, where each of them was a, a, a a traditional image of, of various saints and there were two in each deck and you had to, to match them up and so it's that classic put them all face down try to find the matches and remember where you'd seen them it's like hey i got two saint patrick's yay right. um but this is this the same principle like you know can you remember hey i found the glass slipper um and i remember which tree it was under that's and, that's and that's part of the fun is that as an adult you can help them remember which tree um, without unbalancing the game and they learn to build that association but it's it's there's it's physically engaging there's stuff for them to do with the game pieces and the game pieces aren't so fragile or so numerous mm -hmm. that they're overwhelming yeah so you need a game that's going to help. That, that's designed for that age range. Yeah. And that is going to help cultivate the skills you want to you wanna develop. So in the case of um, Castle Panic, that really helps with teamwork. You have to trade with the other people in the castle in order to make sure the right area that's under attack has the defenses you need. And if you don't work together... You're you're all gonna end up falling. That everybody loses if if the castle is overrun. Mm -hmm. For um, labyrinth, it's more competitive in the sense that only one person is going to get a given treasure, but there are multiple treasures, and the 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 bulk of the game is the moving of the tiles and the changing of the. The paths through the game board mm -hmm. so you have some you have to think ahead while while using the board to guide you yeah so since we've met we've been mentioning a lot of ravensburgers games now that i now that they I have been putting out really high quality games aimed at younger audiences with beautiful components um, Heavyweight cardboard. Yeah, uh, and they've been doing that for at least since I was a a kid. I think in the eighties, because my mother got some specialty catalogs for I don't know some of the the, the stuff she was into, um, and and you know the mailing lists crossed over, and and somehow we ended up being able to get a get a hold of them. I will mention as an aside that if you like jigsaw puzzles, their jigsaw puzzles are also excellent. But I was thinking of another of their games that I really like that's great, again, for um, pre-readers. Rivers, Roads, and Rails. Oh, yes. And yes. that game is an excellent game. You have tiles, and the tiles can have up to three things on them. A river, a road, and a railroad track. And your job is to match them up tile to tile. And what you have to do is have it so that each tile on each side is going to match up. So sometimes you've got the beginning of a railroad. Sometimes you have the start or end of a road. The Or a road bridging the river so or, that it can change direction. Or the river ending in a lake. And the, the point is to build a little countryside with these tiles 
trying to match up the pieces and they can only match up in certain ways and your hand to the stack and it's a question of can you continue onward with the pattern mm -hmm. so it's good for pattern recognition it's good for matching things up and there's a little bit of strategy involved in you in the recognition of it's three more turns till i can play this card again am i going to be able to play the one i want am i going to have to adapt and use a different one and as someone sets something down and that railroad disappears it's like well i can't use the railroad tile anymore so which of the ones do I have remaining are still going to be able to help continue completing the pattern? Right. Right. It sounds, uh, I mean, we've, we've played Rivers, Roads, and Rails and enjoyed that one too. It plays, some of the gameplay for that is very similar to Carcassonne, mm -hmm. where again, you're laying the tiles out as part of the gameplay. Um, Labyrinth plays like that, but with one step removed, because you've got some of those fixed tiles, so you have more limited options as to what tiles can be laid down and a fixed area of board so that they are forced to shift. Since you have casually mentioned Carcassonne, why don't you give a little bit more um, information on that one? Sure. Carcassonne is um, uh, it's very popular. Uh, it's generally classed a Euro game, um, like a lot of the ones we've been talking about today, which developed in, in Europe, uh, won some awards, I believe, in uh, Germany. Um, Carcassonne, the conceit of the game is that you are all trying to build the ancient and medieval city of Carcassonne. Mm -hmm. And so you have tiles that have parts of the countryside and or the city. And as you lay them down in competition with, your, um, with the other players, you're trying to create fields and um, towns out of the images on the cards that you can then claim with uh, the little pieces that are called meeple. And the, then there's a whole scoring process once you get to the end of it. Um, a lot of people really, really love Carcassonne. I have a lot of friends who play it with their kids. Um, our, we have some friends who are just telling us they managed to order from Europe a Star Wars-themed Carcassonne. Um, that they're loving playing with, with, with their child. And there's a lot of opportunity there for, again, relatively simple gameplay that's visually driven, that provides really high-quality tactile components to play with. And the rules are simple enough that even a young, preliterate child can understand them and follow them so that everybody can have a good time playing together. Mm -hmm. So I had thought of one more game that looks like it's well-designed for the preliterate. This is Games A Go-Go. Oh, it is. But this is one where we've spent many, many years having little, little kids, and we've only just hit the point where playing the, the, the more complicated games has become a possibility where we've got enough kids. You know, we love playing war games and strategy games, and we're only now hitting the point where we have enough people that we can actually fill a game board if we don't have friends over. Yeah. So we've, we've spent... got three teenagers now. So between them and their friends, we can now get a full complement of war gamers around the table. But we've had oh, well over a decade now of, of trying to find games that are suitable for the younger players. So we've got a stock there. Anyways, we've been loving playing Settlers of Catan for ages now. Who does that? Um, 
I'll find it in the notes. Anyway, Settlers of Catan has been a family favorite since before we had kids. And when we first started trying to get our children into games well over 10 years ago, one of the first things you did is at that time there was a game called Kids of Catan. I've gone and looked on Amazon. It's now $100 because I believe it's, it's out of print. It's out of print. And this is not Catan Jr. This was a step before Catan Jr. Yeah, Kids of Catan, if you could find a complete copy, which ours no longer is. Our, our copy got destroyed. Yeah. It was played so much and then played with the... the yeah. But the way Kids of Catan <laughs> worked was that you basically had a little farming village and your job was to fill your wagon with a selection of um, resources. resources. And you'd go around, and when you got enough resources, you could build a, a, a building in the village. And the race was to get all of your buildings built, and then you would have race to see who would build the town hall. Having been aware of this game and realizing it's no longer available, I thought, why don't I go look at Catan Jr., which I'm now thinking we need to put on our list. Okay. Uh, because, like... Um, Kids of Catan, it's again made for younger children, and the cards are set up so that even before you're literate, all of the equivalencies are nice and visually easy to see. It's got those heavyweight tiles that we love. Excellent. It's got, um, it uses plastic rather than wooden pieces, but the plastic is taking advantage of that sort of modern 3D printing and things that you can, or, or molding ability. They've got these nice looking um, towers and houses. Ooh, okay. Yeah, the, Really nice. They're, they're, the use of the plastic is to have a much more detailed design. Okay. Um, but the board is set up where you've got an island chain and you're trying to... You've got ships that you have to send out to do things with. Oh, interesting. And that, and that would that'd be right in, in our, mm -hmm. our... And so it's got the same idea behind so many of the Catan games, which is involving with... It's a resource management game. Resource management and exploration kind of is the excuse for the resource management. Yeah. And so the game is about, can I get what I need to do what I want in a community of other people trying to do the same thing with scarce resources? And uh, Catan Jr. looks like it has definitely been designed to introduce a lot of the key ideas in Catan, which is about settling a country by using resources to build towns and roads. Um, this is the same idea. You have resources, you've got a exploration. The thing that they introduced, though, is the idea of pirates. Ooh. Does that function like the robber does in normal Catan? I believe so. So it's okay. got, that's definitely got a fun element to it. So we need to put that on our list. Okay. Um, because well, we have some birthdays coming up. We do have some birthdays coming up. Um, and that's sort of what I, I think is the important thing, is that when you're looking at a game for your, for your younger kids, what you're looking for is... They'll, get, they'll have a recommendation for the age range, but the key is, is this a game where my child, even if they're not a strong reader yet, can still easily work with all of the game pieces? Because the problem with Monopoly, love Monopoly, is that you have to do things like flip the card over to find out how to mortgage the property. And well, you've got to understand what mortgaging a property means. Yes. Um, and, and so there's there's a lot of complication layers in a, in a game like Monopoly because of that. Um, a good game for younger children is going to be icon-driven. It's going to have heavyweight pieces that aren't easily broken. So heavyweight tiles, fewer cards, more um, cardboard chits. Um, ideally, larger pieces that smaller hands can handle easily. Yeah. Um, 
and looking for those pieces as the sort of keys to what's going to make a good children's game uh, are, to my mind, what makes draws us towards some games rather than others. Yeah, I, I'm. I, I would agree there. I mean, I I certainly am comfortable taking a complicated game and then scaling it back. But even that has has its its perils. If you're looking for things to just pull out, open up, unwrap on a Christmas, and and play. Good stuff for a family game night or a rainy afternoon kind of things. Things that are not going to be a lot of thinking on your end to have to adapt. Because that's just, that is an additional layer of complication when you have to adapt a game. So good games to just pull out and play. Yeah. And the nice thing about several of these is that they can be engaging and challenging even for older kids and for adults. And for me, that's really important because Mm -hmm. children are only in that, say, four to eight age range for about four years. You don't want to have 30 games that only your four-year-old can play and that by six or eight or ten, they wouldn't even look at the box or open it up. And that's, in my opinion, one of the greatest criticisms I have of Candyland is that the older you get, the more boring a game it is. Um, And you want to go on to other games, different games. We found, um, I found on eBay several years ago, a game called The Happy Little Train. And we have one of our kids is even to this day mad for all things train related. So I picked up a copy and it's basically Candyland but they use a spinner instead of color-coded cards. And you are a train trying to get, you know, up a mountain and to the other side. And it's beautifully illustrated. It's adorable. The parts were really fragile because it was a vintage game from the 1950s. But it played exactly the same as Candyland did. It was pure luck to for any given player to be able to even reach the end game condition. And so we played it once, maybe twice, and it it sits in the closet and, you know, it sits in the closet with the other vintage games that are really, really fragile. Um, But games like Labyrinth get pulled out on a weekly basis. Games like Castle Panic get pulled out on a weekly basis. And they get played because having played them with the kids, the kids can now play them with each other. But the older kids can get in on it. If our oldest isn't busy with high school stuff, he's happy to sit down and play Castle Panic or Labyrinth because with his younger siblings. Because he doesn't think of them as a kiddie game. Right. And there's challenge even for him. Even um, I find Enchanted Forest challenging because there's so many icons on the trees. And even, even having done some memory work over the last several years... It's still a challenge to remember each one and associate it with the one thing we're looking for. So that challenge is still there, even to an adult and certainly to a teenager and and our older kids. So everybody can get in on playing even a game like Enchanted Forest. Mm -hmm. So I think that I think that pretty much comes to where we were looking to talk today. We've got a if you're looking for a game for a younger player, look for one that's icon driven high quality on the pieces so that they're not easily damaged. Um, 
avoid vintage games for that reason. Yeah. Um, they, they may be charming. You may have fun memories. But if you're going to be worried about them getting destroyed, it's not going to be fun. And look for a game that's going to be as fun for someone at 40 as they are at 4. Yeah, that's a really great way to sum it up. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. So I think um, if we've covered what we're looking for today, we can say goodbye to everyone. Uh, But before we let you all go, um, a reminder, we hope you enjoyed today's discussion and all of the games that we mentioned. I will make sure as I'm going through the editing to get links to them up for you all in the show notes. Um, and please, we would love to hear from you. If there is a game that you have played with your four-year-old that you think fits in this category, let us know, throw it in the comments on our site, or if you can write us a letter and we'll be, uh, happy to tell you, talk to you about it. Uh, you can write to us at playedpod at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at playedpod. We have a Facebook page, uh, at playedpodcast. And until we uh, talk next time, thank you for listening. Have a good one. Bye.